Father, like the psalmist, we pray that you might create in us a strong desire, a desire to, to learn and know and understand your word so that we might know and understand you more clearly and more dearly. We pray, Father, not that we might become a people who know a lot of things because we know knowledge puffs up, not just so that we can brag about what we know, but Lord, may your word lead us to the one who's worthy, who's worth knowing, the only one who is the source of life, the source of, source of wisdom, the source of truth. So Father, we pray that you may guide us as we look into your word this day, the word that you have invested so much into providing to us so that we might not be wandering around trying to make sense of things, but that we might know you and make you known. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fair to say that while we're in this life, a Christian is under construction, and therefore we are in process. If you have your Bible, I'd like us to direct our thoughts this morning to Colossians chapter 3 as we see further evidence of that premise. In Colossians 3, we find ourselves picking up a passage in which the Apostle Paul, by the way, it's page 1402 in your pew Bible. There are many indications here that the Christian life involves growth and learning. If you look at verse 10 of chapter 3 in Colossians, the followers of Jesus are being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. What I'm looking at most specifically here is this the whole point of the verb there, are being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So there's a sense of being renewed, and that renewal of our thinking and our minds is not something that's instantaneous. Indeed, it is the maturation process for any Christian requires learning, lifelong learning. Now, when I talk about learning, I realize some of us have terrible stories of early childhood attempts to try to be taught. Someone who was supposed to help us learn actually was a counter incentive to learning. In my, in my life, it was my fourth and fifth grade teacher, happened to be the same woman both years. I won't go into a lot of details, but let me just say this. I don't think she had all of her paddles uh, in the water. I mean, she had some issues. Matter of fact, in my adulthood, I mentioned to my parents some crazy stories of things she did and some of her antics in the classroom, and they just shook their heads saying, we were so disappointed to hear that she was moved up to the fifth grade after you had her for the fourth grade. I'm like, you knew about this? You didn't do anything to help me? Come on. Anyway, I won't talk about Sybil Collins too much longer, but maybe some of you have experiences where learning was just strange, miserable, and it, it, it left you with no desire to keep learning. Well, I want you to lay that aside because the reality is for every believer in Jesus Christ, we are enrolled in the school of sanctification. All of us need desperately for spiritual instruction. We need to understand and learn the contours of the gospel that helped us to understand God's view of us because of our being joined to Christ by faith. There's a lot of learning that takes place to understand how does God view me now that if I am a person who is united to Christ by faith, how does he look at me? How does he understand me? How does he 
uh, make, how does he evaluate my life and relate to me? We also need to understand God's view of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I wonder if you're one of those people who have found studying to be a little bit hard in your life. It doesn't come naturally or easily to you. And so you find yourself learning better in the context of help having other people with you in order to study. Like when it came to an exam, you would get together with several other people and do it as a group. You found that to be helpful. I really never found that to be helpful too much, but uh, sometimes I have done that in the past. But whether, it, whether you study better on your own, that is, you're good with, with you and reading something and, and listening, or if you're good within a group context, the point is that to leave someone behind and not help them learn and grow is not a very loving position to be in. Love does not overlook other believers who live in gospel ignorance or unbelievers who live in gospel ignorance. Love compels us to be people who are imparting truth and trying to help teach them so that they become learners and continue to learn and grow. And that's why we shouldn't be surprised to learn in Colossians chapter 3, having acknowledged that we're all in the process of learning and growing, that we see another one of our reciprocal commands here, one another commands, which are telling us how to love each other in the body of Christ. If you look there at verse, we'll look at 12 through 16 of Colossians 3. Are you with me? Well, three of you are. Okay. We're in Colossians 3, verse 12. Are you with me? Okay. All right. I just want to make sure. Thank you. And so, Paul writes, as those who have been chosen of God, this is how God views us, as those who are holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, <clears throat> just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Here we go. Teaching and admonishing one another. How? With psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. According to Colossians 3, we understand that believers are to continue learning the word about Christ. You see that beginning of verse 16? Word of Christ, the word about Christ is dwelling in us. We're to continue to learn that. Why? For the duration of our lives so that we will be equipped and we will be able to share gospel insights to provide mutual teaching to our brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly in our times of worship together. The gospel instructs our hearts so that we might instruct and admonish and be able to help others in our family before Christ. Now, before we think through the specific principles related to this idea of the horizontal teaching and, and uh, of each other as we go along, I'd like to take just today's sermon, we're, next week is part two, I want us to think about the vertical dimension of learning from God, learning from Christ, and receiving and being taught by Christ, by God, and therefore then being equipped so that I can do this teaching 
of each other in a mutual way to fulfill this particular way of loving other Christians. So let's look first of all at how are we then to, what has God done to make it possible for us to be mutual teachers? So the focus here is on what God has done and is doing to help equip us to be people that can teach others. Now, first observation here is made from Romans chapter 1, in which we understand that the nature of natural teaching, that is teaching from the natural world, is limited. What I mean by this is, we can learn some things about God through the realm of nature. And that's an important point to understand because there are things about God that are clearly taught about God that everybody in all this world, no matter what language they are, no matter where they live in this world, they can learn something about God. And that's taught in Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn there and look at quickly at Romans 1. Because God is teaching us through his handiwork, through the things that he has made. It is designed on some level to teach us about God. Now, it's limited in what it can teach us about God, but it is effective in doing that. God has made clear through his created order a couple of things about God. Look at Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. That which is known about God is evident within the human race. What is evident about God within the human race? Well, God has made it evident to everyone in the world, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So, if we're going to understand who God is, one place we can start is, let's start at just looking at what all He's made. There are insights about God in the complexities of very small microscopic part, uh, parts of creation, that is, even in a cell, if you go into the cell and begin to understand all of the intricacies, all the different complexities of what is in a cell and what must be in a cell in order for that cell to be alive, you begin to say, you know, this world is not just random. It is not just things being thrown together by natural forces apart from someone who has a design going on here. And so we understand that this knowledge about God, that there is a God who has power. If you look at the billions of stars they keep discovering, there's power that brought these things about. And to understand that this power has himself is not created. He's an eternal divine being. So that knowledge is there. It's evident. Now, does everyone admit to it? No. Much of that time, we suppress that knowledge. It's pushed under. I talk about the illustration of uh, if you've ever been in a swimming pool and you've ever had an inflatable, uh, like a, a beach ball, and you take that beach ball and you try to hold that ball underneath the water, let's say a foot under the water, so it's completely submerged. It takes a tremendous amount of effort to hold it there. And that's what mankind Everyone is doing with the knowledge that there is a God. They're seeking to somehow suppress that knowledge because they don't want to acknowledge there's a God who has made me that I need to deal with and to come onto his terms 
and have be accountable to him. So many people are suppressing that knowledge. They don't acknowledge it fully. They don't seek after the true living God because they worship the creation rather than the creator. And so the, that leaves us then with very limited amount of information. We know that there is a God. We know that he is powerful and that he is a divine creature. But we're left with a lot of questions. We need, we need more help here. We don't ever understand fully why we're here. What's the point of our life? How do we know this God? All those things are not provided to us in nature. Not too long ago, uh, my wife and I upgraded our phones. We had been one of these people who saved money on our phones for years and years by a pay-as-you-go phone. Didn't want all the fancy bells and whistles. We were into saving money. Didn't want to fork out all that money, but we finally have decided that with our kids and their encouragement, hey, come on, Dad, get with the program here. You're driving around lost. You don't know where you are. You need to get a phone where you can find things, get information. So we upgraded to one of these fancy smartphones. Doesn't make me smart, but I can say I have a smartphone. And when they give you these things, these things are not cheap. They come with a price. I realize when you get them, they're very, very impressive in the box. They look like a work of art. I mean, some, they're styled so impressively big screen on them. And you know what? I'm the old-fashioned guy, right? There's no directions. Where are the directions? It doesn't come with a little book that says, you want to do this? Look it up. No. You download the book into the machine, and then you read it in the machine. And it tells you how to do these unbelievable number of things. I love this phone. It's a nice phone. It's a really amazing phone. It's not cheap. It's a nice phone. The point is, we had to go and take classes until we learned that you could get the book online so you could read all these things, just so people to show us what all this thing can do. Just the other day, we're sitting with my wife, we're in the car, we're driving somewhere, get a call from our kids, and they're doing a FaceTime, and we got a tour of our son's apartment in Chicago area. We're sitting in our car, we're watching this thing. It blows my mind, it really does. Okay, enough about that. I still have a lot to learn in order to use the phone, which was designed by some very smart people to do a lot of different things to provide the kind of functions that that phone has been designed to do. I'm just scratching the surface. The point is here, if all we have is just the limited knowledge about the natural world, we are left with a lot of question marks about who we are. What is life all about? What does it mean to have a relationship with the God who made us? And who is he? What is he like? other than being a powerful God who never had an ending or, ending or beginning. And that's why God has given us not only natural revelation, but special revelation. He's revealed his mind to us. And therefore, God has enabled us to understand why he made all things. He's helped us understand what life is all about. He's helped us to understand how we can know and enjoy him. So that's to bring us to our second point then, the nature of spiritual teaching. And I'm going to use, as my outline here, a Trinitarian answer. The Trinitarian nature of all of this special revelation that God has given to us. We only learn a little bit through nature, so God's revealed to us what we need. And I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1 to notice how God addresses this gracious step that he has taken to reveal more and more about himself to us. Hebrews chapter 1, page 1420, or on your smartphone, you can just tap that screen and you're there already. 
But you're only going to look at the, at the page of Scripture, right? You're not going to be doing anything else, just looking at Scripture. Here we go. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, after he did what? Spoke. God spoke. He spoke long ago to the fathers. How? In the prophets. And how did he do that? In many portions and in many ways. God spent the years leading up to the coming of Christ, he spent revealing himself, revealing his mind, explaining his thoughts, his understanding about all of his creation. He's, he explained so many things in many different ways through prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, again, there's abundance of, of examples in the Old Testament about how God did this. Dreams, visions, all sorts of words he gave to his prophets. But much of what he made known was really forward-looking. It was foreshadowing the great revelation, the, the greatest one who's going to reveal and speak to us from God, and that was Jesus Christ. And at the fullness of time, God provided the epitome of this self-revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus was the radiance of God's glory. He came as a supreme teacher to fully reveal all the truth about God and spiritual realities that you and I would need to know in order for us to know him and to gain spiritual maturity. Now turn with me to John chapter 8 to listen to how Jesus described what role he assumed at the beck and call, in a sense, or by the, by the uh, initiation or the initiative shown by the Father. The Father sends the Son in order to reveal his mind to us. Look what John 8 says regarding Jesus' understanding of how all this works. <clears throat> John 8, 26. <clears throat> Jesus said, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me, referring to his Father, is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. Princess, his disciples did not realize he had been speaking to them about the Father. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing of my own, on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. What's he saying? He's saying, what I'm saying to you are divine words. I am revealing to you the mind of my Father in heaven. I'm revealing to you the mind of God. Jesus' revelation of God was not done on his own initiative. He revealed what the Father wanted him to reveal. So when it comes to spiritual teaching, God the Father was the initiator. That's the key word there, initiator, God the Father. He started it all of divine revelation, of special revelation. And of course, Jesus Christ fulfilled that teaching responsibility initiated by the Father. In his incarnational ministry, Jesus was the greatest teacher who will ever live and who has ever lived. He was the instructor. God the Father was the initiator. Jesus is the instructor. Consider the pattern of his teaching. He taught so differently from other spiritual leaders up to the time in which he came. The, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were just amazed at how unique he was. For example, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this great sermon that Jesus preached. We read this summary statement of the reaction to this sermon. Matthew 7, 29. The multitudes were amazed at Jesus' teaching. Why? 
for he was teaching them as having authority and not as their scribes. So the difference was the teachers of their day that they relied on, their spiritual teachers, all these experts, they would quote other experts in order to gain some sense of, of uh, you know, adding authority to what they were teaching. But Jesus didn't need to appeal to other authority. He says, I'm telling you, this is the way it is. He spoke as the final authority. Also, just to realize the motive of his teaching was so unique and wonderful. Here he is revealing the mind of God to us, teaching so many important concepts. His concern was clearly out of compassion for his listeners. He did so with a sense of caring about them and concern. Mark 6.34 tells us this. Jesus sees this large multitude of people. He felt compassion for them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And what does he do in response to that concern and compassion? He began to teach them many things. His compassion for them was to instruct them, to give them more and more of the mind of God. Indeed, when we think about Jesus' teaching and the amazing uniqueness of it, he did so with great variation. You can read about Jesus' teaching not only in formal settings, like in a, in a synagogue or with a grouping of people in a, in a temple kind of thing. It's a formal setting with large numbers of people. He was also teaching in the streets. He would teach sitting in a boat off the edge of the shoreline. He would teach in small groups. He'd teach along the way. He would adapt his teaching to the changing situations that he encountered. But even more significant about Jesus' teaching is that he taught in such a way that he went against the, the tide of popular opinion of his day. He did not sort of modify his teaching in order to gain a wider audience or to increase the number of his followers. And I'd like to use John 6 as an example of this. Just if you'll quickly turn over to John 6. Don't have time to fully unpack this chapter, but it's a fascinating chapter because what you have is Jesus performing a miracle at the beginning of the chapter where he feeds the multitude, which clearly sets him apart as a teacher, not like other teachers. He is doing something that only God can do. The problem with this miracle is that his audience becomes focused on the gift from the one who created the additional amount of food instead of the giver. They are wanting him to serve their needs. They're wanting him to do things for them. And so if you look in John 6, 26, he says, You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So they were ready to make him the king. They wanted him to be the one who would provide for them all the time. Look at verse 60. He mentions this difficult statement. He says in John Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard Jesus' comments and some of the things that he said to them, they reacted by saying, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to all this? He's not saying things that were popular to them. He's not giving in to this idea of being a, a popular leader that, that would just give them what they want. No, he is speaking the truth that goes against what they believe and what they assume. Then he says in verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe. He is trying to address the hard issues of these large groups of people who are 
watching what he's doing and a part of witnessing this great miracle. They're following along for all the wrong reasons. He's saying, some of you don't even believe. You don't even really know who I am and you're not really willing to follow me and submit to my teaching. There's so much more I could say here. I've obviously gotten way off track, too much, too much in depth here, but suffice it to say, no one has ever equaled Jesus' teaching. No one, no one will ever equal it in the future. His teaching was unique, one of kind. It's in a category all of its own. And after some of the disciples here in John 6, after they heard what Jesus said and watched all these people begin to turn their back on Jesus, says, I'm not following this guy. I don't get, I don't get it. There were so many people having heard what he said on those occasions. It says at the end there that some of them withdrew. They, in a sense, they said, we're dropping out of your class. We're not enrolled in this thing anymore. We don't, we don't buying into what you're saying. So Jesus then turns to his apostles and he says to them, listen, are you going to drop out of the class as well? Are you going to turn away and just ignore my teaching and, and disregard it and assume that you know what you need to know and and dismiss what I have to say? And Peter says what? On behalf of all of them, he says, To whom shall we go? Verse 68. You have the words of life. Eternal life. And so if we're ever going to know God's mind, God's heart, God's character, God's plans, God's pattern, he's revealed them to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, Listening carefully, looking at his life, reading the Gospels again and again is such a helpful process for us to know God and to be filled with wonder and to find the words of eternal life on the lips of Jesus recorded there. I must hurry quick on here. I need to hurry up here and keep going. The last point about this idea of the Trinitarian nature of special revelation is if you look at John 14, Jesus promises to his disciples the Holy Spirit who's going to bring to their awareness and to their remembrance all that he said to them. This, I believe, was the beginning of Jesus assuring his apostles that they were going to have help in writing down the New Testament books and that they would be able to record the things that he wanted them to record so that we would have all of that written revelation for us. And so we understand then the Holy Spirit was the inspiration. The Father was the initiator. Jesus is the instructor. It's the Holy Spirit who is the inspir inspirational component here. And this was fulfilled, of course. The promise of the Holy Spirit coming was at Pentecost. And the apostles and those closely associated with those apostles were superintended by the Holy Spirit to write the books of the New Testament. So that Jesus' revelation, this accurate summary of his teaching during his earthly ministry, was recorded by the apostles who were, quote-unquote, carried along, as it were, by the Holy Spirit so that what they wrote in the process of that writing included their personalities, their vocabulary, yes, but what they wrote was preserved from error. It was exactly what God wanted written, and therefore it is something that is inspired. It is God-breathed. It is indeed the Word of God. It is authoritative. It is now complete. Now, when you think about this Trinitarian pattern, the only way to understand God's nature, the only way to understand fully God's purposes, his, our purpose for living, the essence of the gospel, what's the church all about, to understand any of these things, we must 
be students of the word. God the Father has chosen to reveal his mind through Jesus Christ in his life and teaching. And those have been recorded in the writings of the apostles through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The triune God has revealed his truth to us so that we might not only be learners of him, which is obviously the most important thing, is that we might know God. Not just know about him, but know him. The true and living God. But also having then come to know him through Jesus Christ, we then can what? Make him known. We can disciple others about who this wonderful God is. We become teachers. That's why we find in this great commission the encouragement to what? Go, make disciples of all people groups, and eventually he says what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There will come a day, one day in the future, where you and I, if we are Christians, that we will worship God, we will fellowship with God and with each other, we will serve God in heaven. But there are some things in heaven that we're not going to need, and that is further learning and no evangelism. So one of the primary reasons that we're left on this earth is to keep studying God's revelation found in the 66 books of this precious book in order to know Jesus Christ, to know the God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and to be able to make him known and make disciples from all of the nation groups of our world. Making disciples involves teaching people carefully and understanding it carefully enough for ourselves so that you can explain it to somebody else. doesn't mean you have to explain everything, but we have to understand at least the basics. So discipleship then involves a process of what? Learning from Jesus. Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. Be taught by me. Have a submissive, receptive spirit to be able to let Jesus speak into your life, to point out some things and issues of your heart that you need to know and understand. To allow that process of letting go of some of the world's thinking and philosophy that we've tended to buy into that was subtle, but it really goes against what God believes. That as a disciple, I'll take the first step of publicly uh, uh, making it known that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I've been united to him by faith, and so I, I will follow him through the waters of baptism and declare that I am a follower of Jesus Christ to all. And so making a disciple is not a passive pursuit. It's not something that you just get to someday, somehow by not really being deliberative at it. It requires bringing the word of God to those who need to know Christ. In order to do that, we have to be patient in preparing ourselves and preparing uh, our approach to deal with people and explaining why Christ came, what it means to know him, and what it means to follow him. Discipleship is not offering people simple insights on how to make their life successful, how to make their life stress-free. No, disciples are to dig into the teaching of Christ and reflect upon what God reveals about himself, about his work of redemption, about his ultimate recreation of the world. The inescapable bottom line is that every disciple of Jesus is a learner. That's what the word disciple means. So I go back and I ask the question then, have you enrolled as a student in the school of discipleship? And what 
is your level of confidence in the scriptures? Are you hesitant in affirming that the scriptures, that they are reliable in what they teach? Are you filled with all sorts of questions and doubts? And Well, I don't know. I'm not sure, real sure we can be confident of how this is really what Jesus said. This is really what he did. My friend, I urge you to look carefully at the scriptures because they are indeed comprehensive. They are the complete body of truth for what you need for life and godliness. Some people say, wait a minute. The scriptures don't tell me, though, all that I need for life in this world because it doesn't tell me how to operate my smartphone. It's therefore inadequate. It doesn't answer the, the complex questions of the modern mind that wants to know this and this and this. Now hear me out here. When the, when the reformers came up with sola scriptura, scripture alone, what they were affirming was that the scriptures are sufficient for the purpose that they were given for. That is, they are comprehensive in giving us all that we need to know God through Jesus Christ, and they're all that we need to grow in godliness and grace and maturity as a Christian. They are not designed to answer every complex question about how to do uh, brain surgery and all the correct steps on how to do that. Now, what they do speak on, they are accurate, they are reliable, they are trustworthy, they are inspired, they are authoritative, but they're not designed to be exhaustive on every single area of life. Now, having said that, let me just move on very quickly to the practical part of where we go from this. This is not meant to be laying a guilt trip on anybody. In order to sort of make that clear, let me just say, yesterday, I did not read my Bible for my own benefit and my own soul. I'm not bragging about it. I'm just being honest with you. Yesterday was a crazy day. I had a funeral. I had someone stuck in the parking lot here. I spent probably three hours trying to get them to get their battery fixed. Life didn't go the way I hoped yesterday. But the point is, life will be that way someday. But do I enjoy reading all that? Yes. And here's the point. I'm not asking for 100% every day. We're asking for what life patterns can we develop in our life to help us become people of the word who are learning. It doesn't just happen by osmosis, folks. It requires effort. Here's a very good quote from Don Whitney in a very helpful book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Now, if that title makes you nervous and you think, well, that's the last book I'm going to read, talks about discipline, uh, you don't understand spiritual disciplines. He, he gives a helpful insight. He says, spiritual disciplines are scriptural paths where we may expect to encounter transforming grace from God. What's he saying? He's saying if you get in the pattern of learning to pray, you're going to find that to be, as we sang earlier, that this is a wonderful way of dealing with all my cares and my burdens and all the things that overwhelm me. Prayer is a great solace. It draws me to God. Same thing with reading the Word. It can be a tremendously helpful way of finding God, giving you, blessing you with some more measure of transforming grace in your life. Now let me give you a word of encouragement about developing this as a daily pattern in your life. I do this by a quote from John Blanchard in his book, Enjoy Your Bible. Bear with me, I'm going to read this, but he also has a very good quote from D.L. Moody. He says, surely we only... Uh, surely we only have to be realistic and honest with ourselves to know how regularly we need to turn to the Bible. How often do we face problems, temptations, and pressure? Answer, every day. 
then how often do we need instruction, guidance, and greater encouragement? Every day. To catch all these felt needs up into an even greater issue, how often do we need to see God's face, hear his voice, feel his touch, and know his power? The answer to these questions, of course, is the same every day. As the American evangelist D.L. Moody put it, quote, a man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future than he can eat enough for the next six months or take sufficient air into his lungs at one time to sustain his life for a week. We must draw upon God's boundless store of grace from day to day as we need it. See what he's saying? He's saying daily we have needs. Daily we need to be feeding our souls, filling our minds, being renewed with the truth of God's word, reminding us how wonderful Jesus is of all that he's done for us, who we are in Christ. Day by day, you say, well, that's a little tough for me. My life's a little crazy. Well, this is where the, the concept of getting into habits makes such a difference. Some of you are in the habit of checking email first thing in the morning or Facebook, God help us. Or something else that you're looking at that you check immediately, the scores from the previous night or whatever. Habits are things you've developed over a period of time that initially seem difficult to develop, but if you do something for a period of time, just like driving a car, very strange to do it first initially. What's going on? Oh, I got sick. I touched the pedal. You know, 16 things going on become second nature when you get to be a habit. Same thing as tying a shoestring. Remember that? Very complicated. When you first start, but if you develop a habit. In my home, I was encouraged, don't feed your face till you feed your soul. That just sort of stuck with me. Do I always do that? No. Is it a law that I'm going to get in trouble if I don't? No, that's not the point. The point is it helps me to get into that habit. I urge you to do the same. It doesn't always just have to be reading, by the way. You can listen to it in your ears, which I do a lot when I'm walking in the morning. Or when you're doing other things, you find your way in which you get the word into your thoughts, into your mind. Let me finish with this final thought here. Some of us want encouragement. Oftentimes we uh, know that it can be a process. But listen to this. This is from another author, Jeffrey Thomas, I think his name is. He says, don't expect to master the Bible in a day. That's good advice. Or a month or a year. Rather, expect at times to be puzzled by its contents. It's not all equally clear. Can we get an amen on that? The Bible's not equally clear in all these different... Great men of God often feel like absolute novices when they read the Word of God. The Apostle Peter admitted that when he said there are some things that were hard to understand in Paul's writings. Amen. I'm with you. He goes on to say, I'm glad he wrote those things because I have felt that often. So do not expect always to get an emotional charge or a feeling of quiet peace when you read your Bible. By the grace of God, you may expect that there might be, a, it, might, it might expect that to be a frequent experience, but often you will get no emotional response at all. But let the word break over your heart and your mind again and again as the years go by. And imperceptibly, there will come great changes in your attitude and your outlook and your conduct. You will probably be the last person to recognize these. Often you will feel very, very small because increasingly the God of the Bible will become to you wonderfully great. So go on reading it until you can read no longer. 
And then you will not need the Bible anymore because when your eyes close for the last time in death and never again read the Word of God in the Scripture, you will open them to the Word, capital W, of God in the flesh, the same Jesus of the Bible, whom you have known for so long, standing before you to take you forever to his eternal home. Let's be learners. Let's learn and study and grow so that we can be people who next week we'll talk about more can be those who can teach others what we're learning. Let's pray. Lord, for many of us, this is a time for us to confess. For some of us, Lord, if we're honest, brutally honest, we must say we have no interest in reading your word on our own. We just sort of come to church and we give the impression that we are interested in it, but we really don't. And Lord, if there's a heart of someone here today who's really never had a thirst for the word, who's never had a, a longing to know you and to have a heart that is filled with joy in knowing you, Lord, perhaps they're not even in the faith. Maybe they're not believers. And there might be some people here, Lord, who don't want to do what the scriptures teach them. They've been avoiding the word of God for years, just sort of going through the motions. I pray, Lord, that you would quicken their hearts. I pray that you would grant them the gift of repentance. I pray that you would use your word, Lord, to break their hardened heart and show them the precious love of Christ, the grace of Christ, and the forgiving, cleansing blood of Christ availing for them. For others of us, Lord, I pray that today would be a day in which we are just reminded of some of us have a habit, some of us have an occasional habit. Some of us, Lord, are really, rather rarely ever digging into the word ourselves. Lord, I pray that we would just start taking steps to do more of that. Not because we have to, not because the, the preacher preached on it, not because other people are expecting us to, but Lord, help us to do so because we want to know you. We want to please you. We want to grow. We want to, we want to be people who are maturing in our faith and therefore honoring you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make us effective teachers who, first of all, are learners so that we can be used by you for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.